Hello, summertime. It's the 1st of July, 2022. This is the Room Now podcast, and I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. You know, I've got a lot of worries. I lay awake at night, and I worry about my patients during COVID. What do I do with the methotrexate? Do I hold it or not with the vaccine? Methotrexate, oh my goodness. What about methotrexate and lung disease? You know, those pulmonologists are driving me nuts. And then patients are asking me about vitamins. So what am I supposed to say? I know they don't work, but I, I, I worry about it anyway. You know who I'm really worried about? I'm worried about women with spondyloarthritis. Famous quote from John Locke, the philosopher, 17th century, says, what worries you, masters you. That's what we're about in this podcast. We're turning your worries into certainty with reports in the literature from the last two weeks. Let's start off with stuff you should know that are regulatory and important. The FDA approved um, Rizinkizumab or Skyrizi, the first IL-23 inhibitor for use in patients with moderate to severely active Crohn's disease. That's sort of a big step, IL-23 use in Crohn's disease. It's 600 milligrams at weeks 0, 4, 8, and then Q8 thereafter with a maintenance of 360 milligrams sub-Q. Um, this is based on three big trials. Um, again, another indication for an IL-23 inhibitor. It seems like they're running right behind the jacks in the race to have more and more drugs approved. In Europe, the EMA has approved secukinumab. This has already been approved in the United States. Secukinumab for use in kids with certain kinds of arthritis, mainly enthesitis-related arthritis, and also the psoriatic arthritis in children. So that's an FDA approval in here in the United States, now approved in Europe by the EMA. The EMA's um, division that makes recommendations for approval is called the CHMP. They, this week, had a positive opinion about uh, the use of upacidinib in patients with non-radiographic axial SPA. That's based on phase three uh, select axis two study data, and that's sort of important, and we can look forward to that in the future. I think maybe the big news of the week, if there was real big news of the week, I think was the release of the GRAPA guidelines. Uh, this is in publication. It's a full read. You should click on the link. You should go to it. I actually have this pulled up here. Um, and what you need to do is really print out that GRAPA graphic where they have all the treatments laid out in vertical boxes based on the domains. Each domain is in a vertical box, and that's peripheral arthritis, axial arthritis, psoriatic disease, uh, enthesitis, dactylitis. And they added on two new domains, that being uveitis and IBD, related, of course, all to um, psoriatic disease. And what's great about this graphic is that you can look at it and know in a glance what your treatment options are that's evidence-based. So, for instance, for peripheral arthritis, enthesitis, dactylitis, they have an equal playing field for the DMARDs and IL-12, 23, 23, 17 inhibitors, um, uh, JAK inhibitors, and PDE4 inhibitors. Uh, there's a difference, of course, in patients with axial disease, where right now it's uh, the biologic DMARDs of TNF inhibitors, IL-17 inhibitors, and now uh, new data with the JAX. Again, it's worth taking a look at, at least downloading and printing that out and having that as a resource. Um, congratulations to um, Laura Coates and all her committee members who put out, uh, an, an, I think, a really important update 
to, I think it was their 2015 or 2019 document. Uh, I've talked about the risk of developing psoriasis when you use a TNF inhibitor in the past. I think the data that I often throw around, um, like it's a nickel when it really should be like throwing around like it's a manhole cover, but nonetheless, I throw around a one in 1,000 risk of developing psoriasis if you give a TNF inhibitor, for instance, to an RA patient or a Crohn's patient. Uh, and now data comes from uh, two very large Danish registries. Um, data appeared this week in JAMA Dermatology. This is based on almost 110,000 patients that they followed. None of these patients had psoriasis to begin with. Um, 20,000 of them were treated with uh, TNF inhibitors, and they looked at the risk of developing future psoriasis on a TNF inhibitor, on a non-TNF biologic, or on conventional DMARD therapy for either condition. So they found no difference in the risk of developing psoriasis between conventional therapy and the non-TNF biologics. That means drugs like you know, abatacept, tocilizumab, all, all the other ones um, uh, don't really have an increased risk. We do know there's a risk, but the question is how big is the risk with the TNF inhibitors? And they showed compared to conventional therapy, there's a two-fold increase in non-pustular psoriasis and a six-and-a-half-fold increase risk of pustular psoriasis. Uh, and that's what's been out there. Most of the cases seem to be pustular psoriasis. But the actual event rates here are really low, meaning the number needed to harm to get one of these in one year is 342 for a non-pustular psoriasis event and 909 for a pustular psoriasis event. What do those real numbers look like? Again, it is about a 1 in 100 risk for any kind of psoriasis and maybe about a 1 in 1,000 risk for pustular psoriasis. So I think that those O's are helpful. You may want to use that data uh, in the future. We've talked in the past about the cute name JACNE. That's acne associated with a JAK inhibitor. Uh, and then there was a good report in the DERM literature about 857 psoriasis patients on UPA who'd had an um, incidence of JACNE that ranged from about 10 to 15%. It was only mild to moderate. Uh, out of the many hundreds, I guess it was, or a few hundred, it was only two who discontinued the drug for JACNE. And again, it's notable to say that this particular complication of JAK inhibition has only been seen in the psoriasis patients, not been seen in the RA patients, where it's really, really quite rare. Uh, we have some good data, uh, a few good reports of late about what to do with methotrexate in patients receiving a COVID-19 vaccination. This particular study in BMJ uh, looked at the immunogenicity and what happened to the patients. Uh, and in their study, they did show that there was much better immunogenicity when you held the methotrexate for two weeks. Um, but with the second injection, meaning uh, the second dose of the COVID vaccine, vaccine, holding it then led to an increased risk of RA flares. I personally actually have seldom held methotrexate for COVID vaccination. Um, I wanted to see more data. I think the data is very clear, but there is clearly a risk because now you have to, you know, you have to vaccinate. You had a whole two weeks. You're going to vaccinate sometime again soon. You have many weeks where you're going to be off methotrexate. So my recommendation based on a lot of data I'm seeing is you probably should hold for the first dose of the COVID vaccine. And that's optional. 
um, you do get better immune responses um, uh, when you do hold the methotrexate. So keep that in mind. Uh, really good data, of course, has come from the Global Rheumatology Alliance led by Philip Robinson and, um, and others. Uh, John Hausman and Jeff Sparks and a bunch of others had a report this week about the patient registry run by the GRA. And it's a, it's a nice look. They get almost nine, ten thousand 10,000 patients in there. And the data that they came back was sort of telltale, a few high points. One, that 82% of patients maintained their anti-rheumatic therapy during COVID. Pretty impressive. And almost 99% followed public health advice on how to mitigate risk, like wearing masks, social distancing, and that sort of thing. But I think the surprise statistic was that nearly a third of the patients had a change in employment. Actually, it was 27%. Um, and that, I think, is, is something, did that happen in your family and the people you know? Generally not. Uh, and so there's a lot we don't know about what happened to our patients during COVID. Uh, I would say the biggest failing of most people in medicine, not just rheumatologists, was that we did not have a proactive plan that when this happened, that we were going to reach out to all our patients and give them step-by-step -step instructions. Unfortunately, it was based on who called in and us dealing with crises. And I still think there are a lot of patients who are falling between, between the cracks. There are a lot of patients who are still afraid to come in even with these lesser, you know, BA.4.5 variants that are very prominent right now, but, you know, low risk of hospitalization. Again, I think the lesson should be learned is we need a better plan for reaching out to our patients in times of urgency um, and public health crises like this. Speaking of patients, there's a really nice report in JAMA. Um, and it's actually a handout, a download find the link on on our our site um and in this particular podcast and go to JAMA and download it it's a nice one pager that you can use and give to your patient when you're explaining carpal tunnel it's really it's really very well done uh, in the same issue of JAMA there's a podcast where two uh, hand orthopedic surgeons talk about um uh, hand problems uh, that they commonly see in, from primary, primary practices includes trigger finger and carpal tunnel, et cetera. Again, good information that's really useful. So speaking of clinic, I found this report from Jay Room to be really interesting, and I think it should spurn debate in your group and in your university, uh, and that is what's the science behind scheduling follow-up visits? In most cases, it's kind of... I don't know, it's like something you learn from your grandfather as to how soon you bring them back. Obviously, most follow-up visits really are centered around drug safety. You just started a drug, you wanna bring them back at a certain time for a repeat lab and then a, another check for, you know, see how they're tolerating it. But a lot of, you know, you're either in a Q3 month, Q6 month, or if you're making a lot of money, Q1 month visits, um, but there's really no science to this. and. In this one small report, um, 114 outpatient spondyloarthritis visits, they asked the doctors, were those visits necessary or were they not? And they said that up to a third of the patients were really unnecessary. And that was evident because the unnecessary visits had fewer treatment changes, 
15% versus 52% in the necessary visits, and fewer clinical actions. I'm not sure what that means, ordering a test, um, doing a manipulation, Lord knows, but fewer clinical actions, 23 versus 63%. Um, the necessary visits you could have predicted actually on an outpatient basis remotely by collecting data on their ASDAS score being greater than 2.1 or the patient global being greater than 3. That predicted a necessary visit more than 80% of the time. This goes to the issue of remote patient monitoring. I think you're going to hear a nice address on this at ACR coming up by Jeff Curtis. I know I'm running this session on telehealth where he's gonna talk about remote patient monitoring. And it's a, I think it's a really big thing, and it's why you should not be giving up on telehealth. Another um, Jeff, Jeff Sparks and Pooja Mehta had a nice report in clinical rheumatology. The title itself explains the issue. It's time to exonerate methotrexate in causing or exacerbating fibrotic interstitial lung disease in RA. In this nice, concise report, they go through the debate, the controversy, the recent evidence, and they kind of say, let's put it to bed, folks. The problem is, I think we rheumatologists have already, you know, bought into that. It's our pulmonary colleagues that are going to be uh, coming, kicking and, and fighting to the, the dinner table on this. But I think it's your obligation to treat them. You know, you can study the risk of developing RA from military uh, serum biobanks. That's where we got a lot of that data that showed that prior to the onset of RA, going back 10 years, you can find an increasing amount of ACPA positivity and rheumatoid factor positivity. You know, e even, you know, other uh, things uh, can be found prior to disease. In this particular study where they did, they had at least four samples in the year prior to imminent RA, and they looked at 200 RA patients, 150 seropositive, 50 seronegative. They looked for what sort of biomarkers or analytes were predictive. And to me, the surprising one here was um, soluble program death receptor 1. Um, now, we know about PD-1, its role in cancer, its target in cancer, but this actually had the best predictive value or the specificity of more than, um, I think, 80 or 90 percent. And there is a fair amount of literature about um, these uh, soluble PD-1 receptor levels being elevated in patients who are ACPA positive, they're found early in disease, they associate with bad disease, they associate with complications of disease. This is a marker that's going to factor into the pathogenesis of RA. Look for that in the future. And, uh, I think a useful report, a multinational recommendation comes down uh, about the treatment of JIA-associated uveitis, and I think this tells you what you already know. Topical steroids first line, when that doesn't work or when patients have really bad disease, you got to move on to either methotrexate, mycophenolate, and then adalimumab first every other week or, if bad, weekly. And then your treatment options after that are the monoclonal antibody TNF inhibitors, not etanercept, the other ones, then tocilizumab, abatacept, JAK inhibitors, or rituximab. That's the list, if you will, for JIA-associated uveitis. Oh, gee, you know what? That seems like it might also be the list for other forms of uveitis that you're going to deal with. All right, test question. Refractory thrombocytopenia is associated with what? This is a study of 
uh, lupus patients with refractory thrombocytopenia. It does go along with other things. You should probably know the answer here. From the study, it's pregnancy, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, um, and uh, anti-cardiolipin antibodies throw in decreased C3, and you've got four out of the three answers I was asking for. So have your patients ever asked you about shoe inserts for osteoarthritis of the foot? Specifically, we're talking about painful MTP1OA disease and what you can do. And, you know, a lot of podiatrists, orthopausal, and Lord knows who are recommending these hard, um, contoured, molded uh, foot orthoses for those patients. This particular study looked at 87 patients and randomized them to either a contoured orthotic versus a sham, you know, polystyrene shoe insert uh, and looked at them 12 weeks later. And guess what, folks? No difference. This is not surprising to me, but I like to see data like this. They had other secondary outcomes as well, but hard orthoses are hardly worth the investment. You know, patients who are in this kind of pain will, boy, they'll do anything. You know, they'll they'll walk under ladders, they'll buy a hunchback pig for good luck, whatever it takes. But don't recommend hard orthoses. In my opinion, most of my patients stop wearing them and, and, and don't know what to do with them and can't throw them away because it costs them 350 bucks. Um, that's my opinion. Another really useful study came about the uh, came out this week, which was a meta-analysis about can you do joint injections in patients on oral anticoagulants? This is a meta-analysis of seven studies that basically looked at almost 5,500 procedures. And in 5,500 procedures, I think there was four cases of hemorrhage. That's the risk. Um, and in three out of the four cases where they had data, the INRs were not that bad, 1.9, 2.3, 3.4. The point is that, yes, go ahead and do it. Stop worrying about it. I used to do it and worry about it, but I did it because I convinced myself I'm so good at doing joint injections that I'm not going to hit any blood vessels on the way in. Yeah, self-deception does not sound like. Um, again, when I start wondering about things, I start looking up things. I don't know if you've known, I've, I've, I've had double knee replacement. I've had two knee replacements done at the same time. They call that simultaneous knee arthroplasty. And the other option would have been to do it as one at a time uh, in sequence. They call that a single or staged knee arthroplasty. The question is, which do you do? I find it's often left up to the orthopedist who has his own bias or left up to the orthopedist institution whose bias is driven by monetary income. But when you look at the data, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a mixed bag. I think I made the right choice. I did really, really well. But, you know, if you consider that there's almost a million knee replacements done yearly in the United States, and the number has been going up steadily in the last decade, when you look at simultaneous, they tend to have more transfusions, more anemia, a few more VTE events. It's like 2% versus 0.9% with a single stage. They have a few more readmits, and they, but they clearly in multiple studies have less cost. The single staged uh, knee arthroplasties, one study shows more post-op infection, one study longer hospital stays and longer surgery. By and large, most of the studies I looked at showed not a lot of difference between both. So uh, again, there's enough data to support having both done at the same time. 
two last reports. Um, one I found uh, fascinating, and that is, um, uh, and this is from Dan Alataha's group. They looked at data from two large clinical trials, the Go After and the Surround T study. Um, these are biologic studies, I think, where they patients had an inadequate response to a TNF inhibitor, and they um, they either in those studies they allowed patients to either stop their methotrexate. I'm sorry, they had an inadequate response to methotrexate, and they allow and then they put on a, a biologic or a placebo, and but they allowed the patients to stop or continue their um, their methotrexate. So they looked at the proportion of patients who went on to receive placebo only, not, not a biologic. And then they compared those that were on placebo with continued partially inadequate methotrexate or no methotrexate. And guess what? Yes, the placebo plus metho continued methotrexate group at week 16 did much better as far as ACR20, ACR50, ACR70, and CDI low disease activity responses. Now, don't let me get you too carried away with this because the ACR20 responses were 25% versus 12%. 25% on combo, 12% on just placebo alone with no methotrexate. And obviously it goes down way down after that with the other numbers. But this answers the important clinical question if the patient um, has not responded well to um, methotrexate. Do you continue it and add on top of it or you just swap it out? There's a, a few studies, including the Jesmer study from long ago, and there's a few others that also say the same thing here, that you continue the methotrexate, and then once the patient's doing great, you can consider withdrawing methotrexate if that's something, if you want to simplify and whatnot. Um, I lied. There's another report here. Are you wasting money on supplements and vitamins? JAMA this week put out a report from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force about and their meta-analysis of whether supplements and vitamins help patients, especially with regard to cardiovascular risk and cancer, nope, not a chance. They came out kind of against vitamin E and beta carotene saying there's a toxicity risk. I don't know if that's overstated, but the bottom line, they could find no evidence to support it. So the good news is that there's no harm from most of these, and you can encourage patients who want to do that. The patients want to do that because they want some control over their disease and they think diet's important. And it usually is important, especially if they think so. But this is important because a third of patients are taking supplements and vitamins and you need to have the data about how to guide them. So Alexis Ogdi and colleagues presented a study on what happens with responses to IL-17 inhibitors. Specifically, we're looking at uh, ixekizumab here. In, in the SPIRIT-1, uh, P1, and P2 studies in active PSA patients. Now, these patients are given ixekizumab, uh, and the bottom line is that um, going into the study, women in the study tend to have worse disease. They were older. They had a higher BMI. They had worse pain levels, more tender joint counts, had HAC scores and enthesitis scores. Oh, by the way, they had lower CRP levels. But nonetheless, um, when you compare them to males, they had worse clinical responses in all analyzed measures. That includes ACR 20, 50, 70, MDA, DAPSA, um, either DAPSA remission or DAPSA low disease activity state. And the issue is why? And I don't think I've yet heard another, a, a good explanation for this. By the way, this is not unique to um, one, just ixekizumab. It's been seen with other drugs, including the TNF inhibitors and other uh, I believe other IL-17 inhibitors has been seen in ankylosing spondylitis as well. 
there's something, and, and we do know that for maybe it's hormonal reasons, um, it may be a, a pain processing issue. Women tend to not complain as much, but yet have a lot more pain. Um, I, I think that this is a real challenge and something you should worry about when you're dealing with patients, women who have either spondyloarthritis or um, psoriatic arthritis, that they may be more difficult to treat. And this is a continued worry. But remember, John Locke said, that which worries you, you will master. Just give it some time and study. Um, next week on Room Now, it's um, July 4th week. We're going to do a big replay of ULAR content. And we're also launching launching the July campaign. Our July campaign is called Solving Stills Disease. We're going to have a month-long focus on auto-inflammatory conditions, febrile disorders, and Stills disease. So look for that. Hope you enjoy that on roomnow.com. Take care of yourselves.